Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. This week's Ocean Allison podcast episode is brought to you by Truly Wetsuits, durable, fleece-lined wetsuits for the woman ocean adventurer like me. Created by waterwoman Mia Toos, Truly Wetsuits has just been nominated for the best female rider-run brand by Kite Sista magazine. Visit KiteSista.com to vote for Truly Wetsuits by December 31st, 2016. These wetsuits help you stay warm, look great, and feel truly yourself no matter what ocean activity you love to do. And now to this week's episode. This week's Ocean Advocate is Megan Cook. Megan is the Community STEM Program Coordinator at Ocean Exploration Trust, providing deep sea exploration and ocean education via Nautilus Live. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very excited to talk with you today. So listeners, to give you guys a little bit of background on how Megan is joining us today. So Megan was actually the recipient of the Our World Underwater Scholarship Society Rolex Scholarship in 2012. And I think the year after that in 2013, I was looking to apply to that Rolex Scholarship, very prestigious scholarship in the world of ocean everything. I was looking to apply and I had some questions and I actually reached out to Megan via Facebook and just asked her a bunch of questions off the top of my head, just really trying to get a grip on what the scholarship was like for someone that actually won. And she was really helpful and provided me a lot of really great information. And um, I reached out to her more recently and asked her to be on the show. So here we are. And so in talking about the Rolex scholarship that you were the North American winner of in 2012. So so for listeners, basically, the Rolex scholarship is a one-year scholarship for, you know, young person that's wanting to pursue a career in the ocean realm. And from my understanding, it's a pretty big whirlwind of a year. Megan, can you describe what your year as a Rolex scholar was like in terms of, like, places and people and, like, just the craziness? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, The Rolex scholarships are an absolutely incredible opportunity. They call themselves the fellowships for the emerging leaders of the underwater fields. And so that can mean anything from underwater medicine to science to film and video production. It can mean someone who's interested in becoming a dive professional or working in ocean industry and manufacturing and engineering and innovation. And all of those subjects, you get to work with the best and brightest all around the world, just sort of tucked under their wing for one year. They select three people around the world each year, one for North America, one for Europe, and one for Australia and Asia. And then you picked the right word. The word is whirlwind. Uh, During the year, I visited, I think, 17 states in the United States and 11 countries diving and uh, working with really wonderful mentors who are happy to teach you what it is that they love about the ocean and what difference they're making within their own special industries. I came in uh, to that program with a background in science. I studied biology and chemistry and fish. I was definitely a big fish nerd. And uh, yet I was interested 
and it started to look outside of the world of strictly science. And I wanted to know how we talk about science stories and how I could get other people as excited about fish or maybe like half as excited about fish <laughs> as I was. And so I really loved the experience and getting to work with people that were telling different ocean stories. They were going incredible places. They were um, seeking out new discoveries or they were understanding what humans were, how humans were impacting the oceans in new places or they were just taking people and getting eyes in a mask and looking down below it, looking at that soggy portion of the planet. And so I was really grateful to get to work with a lot of mentors, learned a ton of new things. I ice dove in Antarctica. I learned to cave dive in Florida and the Bahamas. I got hyperbaric training. I became a scuba instructor. Uh, it's just an incredible program for, for young people in this field. Yeah, well, it sounds like you had an amazing array of experiences. And I want to actually ask you about one of those experiences that you had during your year as the Rolex scholar. And that is your time you spent in Aquarius Lab in the Florida Keys. Can you describe to listeners that maybe have never heard of Aquarius what that is and what that entails and also just your experience getting to be a part of that? Sure. Uh, Aquarius Reef Base sits off of Key Largo, Florida in the Florida Keys. And if you imagine a school bus sunk underwater and totally encapsulated to keep, you know, the air on the inside and the people on the outside, that's about the right size of a structure for you to imagine. Um, but this is an underwater habitat. It's a place built so humans can live under the sea. It's a place where people saturate. So if you go underwater and you stay underwater, the amount of air that you're breathing in and the gases that are in that air, if you stay down long enough, like if your tank was big enough and you could just hang out down there for long, you reach equilibrium. All the different gas pressures that are different as you go down into the water, they totally equalize in your body and you can actually stay underwater as long as you want, as long as you still have air. You know, the difference between that and normal scuba diving is that you come up to the surface very, very slowly um, instead of just like popping back up. But because of this saturation that you can reach in your body, people can actually live underwater as long as they can stay down there and not have to come popping back up to the surface. So Aquarius Reef Base is set out um, just on the edge of a state park where there's uh, a lot of protection for the corals and where there are a lot of long-term monitoring experiments um, where scientists are looking at the health of the reef and all kinds of different dynamics there. And so groups of scientists can actually go and live underwater and do an incredible amount of research packed into like a one week time frame instead of getting to go down on the scuba tank for like an hour at a time. Uh, I got to go to Aquarius Reef Base actually helping out on a film project. I was there with Jonathan Bird and Jonathan Bird's Blue World, which is a uh, family ocean adventure show. And we were doing a series, filming a series about Aquarius Reef Base. And so I was thrilled to go along as a camera assistant and um, just a general production assistant there. And we spent a week and we got to dive down and film all around this while there were different scientists saturated inside. And then we actually got to pop up inside. Now, you can imagine if you have a school bus down on the seafloor and all the air is trying to stay inside and the water is trying to stay outside, you can't just open the doors. Uh, so to get into Aquarius, you actually have to pop in through the floor. So you swim up from underneath the floor and you pop into sort of an air bubble. And then there's this big pressurized sliding door that opens and you enter into a school bus size room that has a tiny kitchen and a tiny bathroom and a tiny table and chairs and 
bunks for everyone to sleep in. Uh, it's definitely not spacious, but uh, that's okay. You're trying to spend the majority of your time out doing science. I was just so thrilled to get to see that because it is really a wonderful facility for the research community that still exists, but it also is something there used to be many more places like Aquarius, many more habitats all around the world, you know, famous from the Cousteaus and that era. So I'm just so happy that this still exists and that humans living in the sea have a place in the ocean. Um, And so in your year as the Rolex scholar, I know you mentioned some of the experiences that you've had, including Aquarius. What do you think was the most valuable thing that you gained from your year as the Rolex scholar, you know, whether it was a skill or a perspective or an idea or just, you know, one moment in time, what was most valuable to you out of the whole year? One of the best parts of the whole Rolex year was just the confidence that I gained by getting to meet all the incredible mentors that I had from that time. I was a few years out of college. I had worked for a few years. I knew a little bit about what I wanted to do, and yet I was really looking to sort of branch out from that, and that was a huge leap to me, and I wanted, I guess, some some reassurance or some build my skills, certainly, to know that this was, in fact, a field that the ocean needed. I think science communication uh, is really turning into a renaissance right now in its development in that academics and institutions are learning how important it is that we not only keep learning about the world, but that we tell people what it is that we're learning as a science community. And and I just got a, such confidence by getting to work with people who had seen this sort of wave coming. And to get to know that uh, I could be a part of that, I just really, really liked that a lot. And it's given me wonderful mentors to look to as I've made different transitions in my career and and just a whole lot of confidence. Uh, Dr. Sylvia Earle, personal you know, icon and mentor of mine, I was so nervous when I met Sylvia for the first time, which was during my Rolex year. And I, you know, you sit there and you think about what you're going to say before you go up and say it. And then I blanked as soon as I actually walked up to her. And, and then so I sort of like fumbled my way through whatever it was that I said I wanted to do when I grew up. And she just looked at me and she said, that's wonderful. What are you waiting for? Go do it right now. There's no, there's no time to wait. Go do that right now. Tell people about the ocean right now. And, and I think it's that kind of confidence that the Rolex scholarship gave me. Why wait? The ocean needs us and there's fascinating things to see and experiences to have and stories to tell. Go do it. Wow, that's really amazing. And I had a similar experience meeting Sylvia where <laughs> you have all these ideas of the things you want to say and then they, they just all go out the window. But yes, I she's amazing and extremely inspiring. And that, that's so cool that she motivated you in that way and in, in such a simple way. I think that she's really good at that. <laughs> she is. And she's very gracious. I think, I think a lot of people blank when they... <laughs> go to speak to her the first time. Yeah. And so, you know, in talking about kind of your ocean icons like Sylvia Earle and all these people that you met throughout the Rolex scholarship year that inspired you and and motivated you to to really just like go for it, be a voice for the ocean. I want to kind of backtrack a little bit and I want to ask you about your childhood because 
It's pretty interesting to me. So listeners, Megan is actually from Boise, Idaho, which is, if you don't know where Boise, Idaho is, it is pretty much in the middle of the United States, somewhere towards the left side, but it's in the middle. There's no ocean near it at all. Personally, I grew up in South Florida, pretty much, you know, under the water from when I was a little baby. And, you know, the ocean is has been such a big part of my life ever since I can remember. So it's foreign to me that, you know, someone in this similar field and someone so passionate and successful in the world of ocean science and communication is from Boise, Idaho. So can you touch on being from Boise, Idaho and being in the ocean communication world and how that transition really happened for you? Sure, absolutely. I can thank my ocean passion for starting with a really inspirational teacher. First grade when I was six years old. Now, I think almost every single six-year-old wants to be a marine biologist. There's just something in every six-year-old that is convinced that that is the best job in the world. And I was that kid. And yet it was this first grade teacher who really kept that spark going. Um, She had been a research scientist, actually an ocean scientist, before coming back to Idaho and starting to teach. And I remember drawing currents with crayons and using shells to do math. And I also just thank my parents. We were an outdoorsy type of family, just active, and they fueled that curiosity. And whatever it was that I said I was curious about the ocean or anything else, you know, they were giving me storybooks to read about the ocean and going to the library. And nothing seemed out of touch, even though uh, I was more than 500 miles from the closest shoreline. And I don't actually remember going to the beach Um, until I was probably in middle school. But uh, that passion just stayed really alive thanks to wonderful teachers who encouraged me. And I was the captain of a national champion contender academic decathlon team. Like I was was in the nerd team big time growing up. But I love that. And I, I so encourage young kids that I talk to, like, go for it. There's People are like, oh, it's so dorky if I have this big passion. I'm like, no, it's not dorky. It is going to fuel and continue to drive forward your entire life. There's nothing wrong with being super excited about things. And I was definitely that kid. Uh, So I just knew that science was something I wanted to do. I liked that I got to ask interesting questions and that there wasn't always a right answer. And all the way through school, um, that stayed really prevalent. So I ended up deciding to go to Oregon State University because I knew I wanted to study uh, science and particularly ocean science. And I just fell in love with the community of learners who were there and the mentors that I found. So I headed west from Idaho and uh, got a little bit closer to the beach by the time I was in college. But I can still thank Tori Doyle. Tori Dell is my first grade science teacher. And actually, after I won the Rolex scholarship, I reconnected with Tori. And when I screened my film that I made during that year, I had a screening in Boise and specifically invited her and her family. And and we've reconnected since. So it's really powerful to have that mentor still be present in my life. That's so cool, Megan, that you're so connected with her. And uh, I want to ask you, though, so a big thing that ocean communicators, ocean conservationists like us try to convey to people is that, you know, no matter where in the world you live, and, you know, maybe you could use Boise, Idaho as an example, you know, far from the ocean, that we're all connected to the ocean and that what we do affects the ocean and what the ocean does affects us every day. Do you feel like being from a landlocked place 
allows you to better communicate that fact to people and, and to children? I think it certainly helps. I think that is a powerful point to get across regardless of where you happen to have grown up. We all sure do like breathing oxygen, so we're all invested in the health of our oceans. And I think a few things make it sort of an extra interesting challenge to talk about oceans in Idaho, and yet some of that dichotomy makes it a little bit more exciting. Idaho is, Idaho is lots of different habitats, but the part of Idaho I'm from is the desert. And so to get to talk about um, how the very little things that you do, whether that's composting some of your garbage or making sure you're responsibly using plastic and eliminating as much single-use plastic as you can, or whether that's um, responsibly taking care of chemicals that you put on your lawn, or whether it's deciding what you're going to eat that week, all of that plays into the bigger picture. And I think there's an opportunity for ocean folks of all kinds to really capture people's curiosity. Because just to say to a kid who lives in the desert and who's maybe never seen the ocean that, you know, what you do right now affects the ocean, it doesn't make sense. And yet, if you can tell that story in a compelling way, it's a really neat idea that you can be so far away and yet be helping out something that's absolutely essential to all of us. And so now you are currently, like I said in the intro, you are working with Ocean Exploration Trust. You've been their community STEM program coordinator for about two years now. And for those of you listeners that have never heard of Ocean Exploration Trust, it's an amazing organization founded by Dr. Robert Ballard. And if you haven't heard of Dr. Robert Ballard, he is one of the biggest names in ocean exploration ever. Working with Dr. Robert Ballard now for the last two years with Ocean Exploration Trust, can you explain to listeners a bit about his background, you know, why he's so well known in the ocean exploration world? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, Dr. Ballard is really the preeminent explorer of our generation. Dr. Ballard has gotten a lot of fame for discovering the Titanic uh, the Bismarck, many, many, many famous shipwrecks. But what uh, Dr. Ballard would love to have his legacy be remembered for is actually the discovery of hydrothermal vents in 1976 in the Galapagos Rift. So before that time, everyone on the planet thought all life on the planet lived in these shallow, sunny parts of the ocean. Um, everything had to rely on photosynthesis. We didn't have a solid explanation for how the skin of the planet was recycling itself because we didn't have uh, an understanding of how the plates were actually interacting at their boundaries. Dr. Ballard is a geologist and an archaeologist by his training and uh, was leading a group from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute there, diving with Alvin and some Toad's camera systems in the 70s. And they discovered along the Galapagos Rift, a place where the skin of the planet is tearing open, a rift area where two plates are moving apart and uh, magma is rising up. And it's what we now call black smokers, these tall chimneys releasing these molten chemicals from the center of the earth. And there around these chimneys were long tube worms, the iconic lipstick style tube worms, and these rich communities of life completely thriving off of chemosynthesis. So making all of their food out of the minerals that come out of the center of the planet or out of the crust of the planet. And 
this was just totally unknown and it has really transformed how we define life. It's changed how NASA looks for life in outer space. We have totally different criteria about the kinds of minerals and elements and compounds that could support different types of communities, different bacteria, different higher forms of life. And so uh, this was totally revolutionary from the time, I mean, my parents were in school this was unknown. This would have been would not have been in the textbooks. This was only a few years really before I came onto the planet. So I think one of the best things about Dr. Ballard's message though is although he's been this great discoverer, and sometimes I think we think of the era of exploration and discovery being past, you know, first man on the moon, first man here, first man here, first man there. Now is really the time we have better technology. We have a lot more left to explore. The great explorers that will be written about in history books are kids, men and women, that are in middle school and high school and in college classrooms. There's a whole other generation worth of exploration to do on the planet. And Dr. Ballard has really made it his life's mission uh, to continue encouraging people to explore and to use his own exploration to inspire those kids who are in classrooms. Yeah, and so he does that mostly with Nautilus Live. For listeners, if you haven't heard of Nautilus Live, it's absolutely incredible. You should immediately after listening to this podcast go to nautiluslive.org and check it out. It's basically Dr. Robert Ballard and the team from Ocean Exploration Trust and you know whoever they have on the ship at any one time exploring the deep sea with cameras and collection instruments and audio equipment and lights and live streaming that video and audio to this website nautiluslive.org to anyone anywhere all across the planet that wants to explore the ocean the sea floor with them so it's absolutely incredible when when nautilus live came out i was completely shocked and like watching for hours on end but uh <laughs> So in talking about how Dr. Ballard really has dedicated his life to trying to inspire kind of the next generation of ocean explorers and noting that, you know, ocean exploration is definitely not over. There's so much left to explore. We hear statistics of there's more known about, you know, the moon or Mars than our own planet, um, than, than our own deep sea floor, you know, as someone that works professionally in this field of exploring the deep sea floor. Can you comment on the fact that we know more potentially about the surface of Mars than we do about the surface of our own sea floor? Yeah, I can certainly comment on that. I would take the potentially out is the first thing. We absolutely know more about the structure, the topography of Mars and of the moon than we know about the bathymetry, so the topography of our sea floor. That is without a doubt yes, we know more about Mars and about the moon than we do about the surface of our own oceans underneath the waves. Uh, part of that is because you can shoot light to those planets and we can use um, technology like x-rays to get really high definition maps of the seafloor. If you were to go to, you know, let's say Google Maps or whatever your favorite ocean map is, you are likely to only see what we kind of talk about being like the wet tablecloth view. The data that you're looking at is actually satellite derived from taking hundreds of thousands of measurements down from space to the surface of the ocean and then averaging those data points. And you sort of get this uh, slow sloping view of what is there. 
That's actually due to microgravity. So if there's a mountain underneath the ocean, um, we call it a seamount, but a seamount actually attracts water to it with gravity. So above the seamount, you actually have a little stack of water sort of piled up on top of each other. The sea level is not actually level. Over the trenches and over the low spots, there's less landmass there, there's less microgravity attraction. So you actually have dips. And so uh, we can get those very broad shapes of the ocean floor that way. And yet, in order to get high-resolution imagery, you need a hull-mounted multi-beam bathymetry system. So you're going to send sound down to the seafloor. It bounces back, and you're able to recreate the shapes of the seafloor based on a very simple math equation. How long did it take? How long elapsed between when you sent the sound out, when the sound came back? And you can calculate the speed of sound in water. Uh, so it's very simple math, and yet you can map that. So in order to map the entire ocean in high resolution, um, a study came out a few years ago that it would take 200 ship years. Now, if we had 200 ships out there, that would be one year. Um, but there are not publicly funded and research style ships out mapping the seafloor like that. So we have 90%, 90% of the global ocean left to explore. Um, there's only high resolution maps of about 10% of it. So all those comments, all those comparisons you hear are absolutely true. And for all of the viewers out there, I hope that that, at least for me, and I hope for you, that's a tremendously exciting thing. Perhaps a little discouraging that we have not gotten more work done yet, but I spend no time feeling discouraged. I just really uh, am incredibly excited about the potential of discovery that's left out there. And including for your American listeners, um, half of our country is underwater. We control an econ exclusive economic zone that's 200 miles um, beyond our shorelines, and that includes that continental shelf. And that includes 200 miles of radius around every one of our land holdings in the Pacific Ocean, which is a massive amount of the planet's surface. We do have and control the number one ranking of countries that control global seafloor, and we don't even have basic maps of that. When Thomas Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark across the country, and they were the very first explorers to go out west, out to my corner of the world here, and to check out what was there, what kind of habitats were there, what resources did we have, what people were out there, you know, how did this impact everyone else that they knew, their own communities that they knew. And Dr. Ballard talks about us being Lois and Clark, because certainly um, there are a lot of tremendous women involved in our program. So Lois and Clark, and we're going out to the 50% of America that is still underwater. Wow. And so you've gotten the opportunity to be aboard EV Nautilus many times as it's exploring the deep sea and mapping the seafloor and, and doing all that exploring that needs to be done. There's obviously been many surprising discoveries in terms of different habitats we didn't know exist or different organisms that we didn't know exist or behaviors that were observed via Nautilus Live that no one had ever seen before. But I want to know for you personally, being on the ship and working with Nautilus Live and Ocean Exploration Trust, what was one of the most surprising experiences that you've had, you know, being on the ship and seeing what's going on down there? What really, really shocked you and took your breath away? 
Oh, there's, there's so many. So I've actually had the chance to be on Exploration Vessel Nautilus for four years because before I joined as a staff member, I worked with the group and explored with the group as a science communication fellow. And so across four seasons, I've had the chance to explore in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean and now in the Eastern Pacific, all the way down from our Southern California borderlands. But one of my most memorable moments actually happened in Canada, off British Columbia, we were working with a group called Ocean Networks Canada out there and exploring the Endeavor vent field, which is a hydrothermal vent field about 300 kilometers offshore of Vancouver Island to the west. And it's one of those places that I was describing, like the original site of exploration of hydrothermal vents, um, where the skin of the planet is tearing open and these superheated fluids are shooting up out of the seafloor and there's all kinds of incredible kinds of life out there thriving off of these hot fluids and in total darkness, just thriving down there. And some of these chimneys are as tall as 10-story buildings. And to see our remotely operated vehicles, which are the tools we send down to the seafloor, they're about the size of a car, and they contain all of our scientific sampling equipment, our video cameras, all of, uh, they have two robotic arms, you know, they um, are fantastic tools. But seeing them completely dwarfed by these massive structures, uh, it just reminded me of these incredible landscapes that I grew up around, mountain ranges and huge forests. And uh, I think sometimes people think the seafloor is just this flat, barren, muddy, an endless sort of, I don't know, prairie, for lack of a different word. And certainly, don't get me wrong, there are parts that are muddy and flat and sometimes feel endless. But there are also these three-dimensional, enormous structures. And to get to see something that I normally think of as being quite big, our ROV Hercules stands much taller and much wider than I am and weighs about 5,600 pounds. And to see that vehicle just totally dwarfed by a seafloor feature was really neat. My Another one that really struck me this last year is we also have the chance to not just explore geology, chemistry, biology, the kind of sciences that a lot of people think of in ocean science, but we also have a chance to tell human stories in the deep sea. The deep sea is the largest museum in the world. There are more artifacts of human history lost there than all of the museums of the world combined. So we have a chance to explore some of that history with shipwrecks, and certainly Exploration Vessel Nautilus did a lot of that when we were in the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, the Aegean Sea. Uh, we excavated an amazing shipwreck in the Gulf of Mexico and visited German U-boats there. But just this last year off the coast of California, we got to visit USS Independence. We took the world there for the first time in 65 years. This was a piece of World War II history. Um, when we got concerned that the Cold War would help release some of those secrets that independence held. We helped, took her offshore and we sank her. Uh, this was in the early 50s, so long before GPS came around and long before we sort of knew better than what our cultural standard is now, that you don't just dump things in the deep sea when you want to see them disappear, um, but really just a different time when they wanted to have this thing go away. And it did, in fact, go away. Nobody had seen independence had eyes on her in over 65 years. And we revisited that site this year. That meant a few things. We got to see independence totally transformed as now an artificial reef with massive barrel sponges and fish life and a rich community growing all over her. So certainly a new chapter for this wreck, but also the human stories really touched me because we have Nautilus Live viewers all around the world. 
we were hearing from viewers whose fathers, grandfathers had served on independence. We were hearing from people along the California coastline that had gone out and watched independence be towed out under the Golden Gate in the 50s. And I even heard from my own family when we found two Hellcat aircraft still on independence, um, my own family wrote in and said that that was the kind of aircraft that my grandfather had served as a flight instructor during World War II. And those are the moments I'd never expected. You know, I wanted to see cool creatures and certainly, you know, coming full circle on how much I love fish. I always get excited about silly fish with silly looking faces when we see them in the deep sea. But suddenly to be connecting humans to another part of our own history and doing that with folks live all around the world, there were tens of thousands of people there rediscovering USS independence with us. And that was certainly a highlight that will be hard to beat. So not only do people like you, the people that work for Ocean Exploration Trust and that are employees, get to experience being on EV Nautilus and having these crazy, amazing experiences and helping to explore the deep sea, but Ocean Exploration Trust and Nautilus Live also provide a lot of opportunities for students and teachers to come aboard and be a part of a exploration expedition and really get hands-on, in-person, you know, training and experience in the world of ocean exploration. And I know you guys have some scholarships and fellowships available that are open for submissions right now. Can you talk about those opportunities for those listeners that might want to apply? This is a huge part of our mission at Ocean Exploration Trust. If we just got to go exploring and go see amazing things, that would be awesome for us. You know, we'd have great jobs. But um, a much larger and more important part of our mission is to use our exploration to help inspire the next generation of not only ocean explorers, but also just STEM professionals. There's an enormous amount of science, technology, engineering, and math basics that go into what we do out at sea. Uh, and we, through encouraging educators and students to come out, and also through uh, workforce training programs, really letting people tuck under the wing of our team, really promote that education process. So we have a couple programs open right now that I hope all of your listeners will immediately uh, open up a tab and go to oceanexplorationtrust.org or oet.org and we have our science communication fellowship which is for classroom teachers informal educators from museums science centers artists if you help inspire and communicate science or technology or math or engineering to other people we want you to apply for this program you get to come to a science communication workshop that we host in rhode island as well as sail for one to three weeks on Nautilus. And as the interpreter of our science, you get to help field the incoming questions from the global audience and also connect with classrooms and science centers all across the world via our live ship to shore broadcasts. It's an incredible program. It's how I started with Ocean Exploration Trust. I was a science communication fellow in 2013, came back as a lead fellow as a mentor in 2014 and became a staff member in 2015. Um, so those programs are open now. All of our programs are no cost to the participant. Please check those out. And then the other program I'd love to chat about is our science and engineering internship program. And that allows undergraduates, graduate students, and recent graduates in the fields of ocean science, seafloor mapping, 
ROV engineering or video engineering, our broadcasters, to come out on the ship. And this is really that workforce training program. And you'll sail for between three and five weeks on Nautilus. You can either get college credit or a stipend. And uh, that program is also available now. Just an unbelievable opportunity to train right alongside experts and get hands-on experience um, working in the deep sea, which is hard to come by. And then if uh, one more program, if I, we have any young listeners or listeners with young kids, we have an art contest where we want kids between the ages of 6 and 14 to help us design our expedition patch for 2017. Every single year, we have a brand new expedition patch that goes on stickers and patches and gets worn by the Corps of Exploration, our team. And so I invite those young explorers to bust out the crayons and help tell us what inspires you about the ocean and about exploration. And again, more information about all of those programs is on oet.org or oceanexplorationtrust.org. Awesome. Yeah, definitely check those out, listeners. Like Megan said, some absolutely incredible opportunities there. And uh, to kind of wrap up our conversation about Nautilus Live, what's next on the horizon for Nautilus Live? Where is Evie Nautilus going next? Where is it exploring next? For myself and for listeners that want to tune in next time Evie Nautilus is exploring. We have an awesome season coming up for 2017. So the ship right now is in the Los Angeles area. We are in what we call, quote unquote, our off season. But this is the time where we're getting permits and we're getting science experts together who are planning our cruise objectives and clarifying uh, where we'll be headed. And we're selecting all of our participants for our awesome education programs and getting ready to really kick off the season in mid-April um, with the Big Bang. So our season next year will be in the Eastern Pacific. We are going to head down into Mexico, explore around Baja a little bit, head into Guaymas Basin, which is a big area of volcanic activity and a lot of interesting dynamics happening there. And then Nautilus will work its way back north. So we'll be off the California coastline. We'll be working back up into the Pacific Northwest. Last year, we discovered over 500 methane seeps along the Cascadia margin, including two areas where there was methane ice. So ice in the seafloor, embedded in the seafloor, made of methane. And uh, this is an amazing dynamic that happens where one plate subducts under the other and it basically scrapes the mud off and are a really rare phenomenon. So we're going to be going back and learning a lot more about those areas. That's what we know so far, but the season certainly could still expand. But we're planning to be live 24 hours a day, seven days a week uh, from mid-April through mid-September at least. Awesome. And so, yeah, definitely starting in April, go straight to NautilusLive.org and join in with Megan and the whole Nautilus Live crew and explore the ocean with them. For listeners, if you've been inspired by what Megan has talked about today on the podcast, all of her work with Ocean Exploration Trust and Nautilus Live and being a science extrovert that loves communicating ocean science and also her um, experience as the 2012 Rolex Scholar, you guys can connect with Megan via social media. When I post this podcast episode, I'll be linking to Megan's Facebook page and her Twitter so you guys can connect with her personally there and I'll also link to the Nautilus Live website, Ocean Exploration Trust website and uh, both of their social media so you all can check all all of that out as well. So lots of ways to get involved and to 
grow your understanding and grow your excitement just like Megan has grown her excitement and continues to do so. So Megan, I want to thank you for all the positive change that you're creating for the ocean. And I also want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. You just heard Megan Cook, Community STEM Program Coordinator at Ocean Exploration Trust, providing exploration and ocean education via Nautilus Live. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at oceanallison.com. And make sure to check out trulywetsuits.com, that's T-R-U-L-I wetsuits.com, before the holiday season is up. And tune into next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.